0: Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson.
1: Hey guys, uh, I've got news to get to right away relating to last week's show. Sure. Um, we talked about very exciting opioid trial that was set to kick off uh, in Cleveland, and uh, We did our best to couch that it may end in a settlement, and I I think we did a good job. I mean, it was a very difficult thing to, uh, you know, we were like,
2: we had no idea going into Friday if it was going to settle or it was going to go to this trial. But uh, and then it
1: looked like it was going into the weekend, and then we that that. uh, But and then, but yeah,
2: late Sunday news broke, and then more details came out on Monday morning that a settlement had been reached in to avoid the trial that was supposed to kick off on Monday. Um, The details, as we have them right now, are that. A 260 million dollar deal was reached with the three Ohio counties that were at the center of the trial that was going to take place this that was that was to take place this week, right. um, which was a bellwether. It was going to stand in for some of these these thousands of other combined cases. Um, so the the trial's off, and that dealt with that case. And later in the day, four state attorneys general announced a tentative deal valued at 48 billion dollars to settle the broader sort of global case. Um, But now the issue is that that needs to be approved by 46 other states, which uh, seems reasonable given some of the reporting. But the bigger ask is going to be the states and the town or sorry the towns and the counties mm-hmm. of which there are hundreds who apparently were looking were' always sort of on the side of we need to get more we, we yeah you know more sort of the the um, the boots on the ground mm-hmm. and they were always pushing for more than the states were so it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of weeks whether uh whether they can come together and and sign on to this deal I don't think any individual you know towns are going to want to hold out um, yeah but it'll be it'll be interesting to see
0: yeah, it's good to have an update about where we are with that big grouping of cases there. Um, but now we're going to turn to talking about what we're covering later today. Um, Alex and I talked with Jack Carp, who wrote a really good story about people trying to get a clean slate for prior marijuana convictions now that it, the drug is legal in many states, yeah. and sort of the problems they face and, and how that expungement will work. And it was a really nice chat.
1: Yeah, it was good chat. Um, we, like, as I said to Jack was like, there's always like this sort of patchwork of state uh, laws that make it uh, sort of difficult uh, landscape to navigate. Um, But before we get to that, um, there is news to discuss. Um, The really interesting, we'll start uh, uh, in New York State Court, there's a really a groundbreaking uh, climate change trial that got underway this week. um, And it centers on um, ExxonMobil and sort of alleged deceptions that it made uh, regarding climate change but it may not be in the way you're thinking of. Um, This is a securities suit, and it basically says that Exxon misled investors about the extent to which increased climate regulation would affect its businesses. So it's very interesting. It
2: is interesting. We've seen different cases try to get climate change into a courtroom because it isn't a square fit in any sort of single way for civil cases for private causes of action. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we've seen the public nuisance cases, and yeah. I think there was a RICO case, and yeah. there's been all sorts of different attempts here. Walk us through what they're trying to do here and why they think this is how they can do it.
1: Yeah. Um, the details get get really weedy here, which uh, has has implications for like this sort of broader activism, but the case, we'll just walk through it. Um, so like a lot of companies, ExxonMobil sort of in, over the last several years, has publicly you know, acknowledged the realities of climate change. Um, And the sort of threat that it poses to to the globe. Um, But in this case, which is brought by the New York Attorney General's office, um, claims that, you know, while the company is sort of saying many of these things publicly, it's uh, acting very differently behind closed doors. Um, And as I said, it's a securities suit. So it basically breaks down like this. Beginning in about about, uh, 2010, the company began telling investors that it had come up with this sort of internal pricing metric. Um, that it was using to model the, the, the effect that the government you know, climate regulations would have on its business. Um, but the problem came when, sort of, again, as alleged in the case, the company was using two different sets of metrics. It uses this very sort of high figure that, you know, that, that, that forecasts a lot of climate regulation mm-hmm. okay. uh, to the public and to its investors – um, but a much lower cost to sort of guide its internal decision making, and what that means basically is that the company is telling investors that it has fully accounted for the realities of climate change as it, um, you know, goes about its business, um, but that in fact it has not actually it is not actually conducting business that way. It is acting as though it will not be regulated for climate change, right? And this so is having an effect on the stock price. It's the
2: classic. I mean, it's it's. I mean, it's obviously a very different climate focused set of facts, but. It's it's the standard securities claim that you're supposed to be honest with what you're doing internally
1: with yeah. the people who are investing in your company externally. Yeah, uh, the the there was a quote uh, from an earlier filing from from New York State here that kind of sums it up really well. Exxon, in effect, erected a Potemkin village to create the illusion that it had fully considered the risks of future climate change regulation and had factored those risks into its business operations. As a result of Exxon's fraud, the company was was exposed to far greater risk from climate change regulations than investors were led to believe. So basically, ExxonMobil is making its assets look more secure than they were, you know, with, with climate change regulation sort of waiting down the pipeline, which impacted the stock price and... We're very early. The trial just began, and damages at this stage are very nebulous. But a a an expert for the state has uh, assessed the damage at ranging anywhere between $476 dollars. Wow, yeah. Um,
0: so, I mean, I would imagine Exxon's obviously putting on a rigorous defense here. Do they dispute that there's two sets of numbers? What are what's their allegation?
1: Couple lines of defense here that we're going to see play out this week. Um. Uh, as a matter of just fact, Exxon does not deny that there are sort of two sets of data at issue here. They don't deny that they're using one thing and showing investors another thing. But they're sort of arguing that the internal data that they're using um, is a different sort of internal metric that they are not obligated to share with investors. They, the, they said in an earlier filing, which will sort of get trotted out again, um, talking about the suit. The suit deliberately misrepresents a process we use to ensure company investments take into account the impact of current and potential climate-related regulations. So, you know, they're basically saying that this, this um, sort of higher, uh, higher price that they put out to investors is meant to communicate, like, all possible climate uh, regulations that they might face, whereas okay. internally they deal with the climate regulations that are on the books right now. And, secu- I mean, securities law doesn't mandate that you share – Literally everything. Right. I mean, it, there are there are things that can stay
2: private to a certain extent within big companies. The so question
0: is just uh, if the public shared information was intentionally misleading, right? right? Yes. Exactly. So-
1: yeah, and this is um, that that sort of gets into the weeds of the securities lawsuit, which we don't have to disappear down into too far. But it it it, it comes down to what constitutes a sort of material misstatement. Exxon is sort of of the opinion that. They they are merely informing investors that they account, that they are accounting for climate change, right. which they have said they have done. But then they are not obligated to tell them, you know how and what metrics we're using yeah. to sort of quantify this risk. It's just they, they, they are merely telling investors, this is something that we are accounting for. You as investors need to take that into account when you're moving your money around. So that's about that's that's what they've said, and they will forward that and perhaps other defenses at trial.
0: I, this feels like a really big case to watch because if it's successful, it can kind of change the game of what kind of suits could be brought Definitely. about climate change issues. Um are we expecting like a lot of fireworks as the case plays out?
1: Yeah, I did want to mention also um, it's it's a big case, as you say, and there's really um, uh, some really big names at play here. Uh, okay. As I said, it's brought by the New York attorney general's office. So the attorney general herself, uh, Letitia James, is sort of marshalling the case for the state. Um, And and, uh, Exxon has said it's it's, as you would expect, it's like this politically motivated crusade and all of that Um, on their side, on on, on Exxon's side is sort of white collar legend uh, Ted Wells at Paul Weiss who the general public probably remembers best from doing the Deflate Gate report. Sure. Uh, so when I just like white-collar legend. Like, guy's a l- total legend. The guy, <laughs> I almost went with stalwart. I don't know, whatever we want to say. Sure. When he's not chasing down Tom Brady's cell phone, he does white-collar defense for Exxon. Um, also, interesting thing to keep—it's a—it's a, it's a three-week trial that just kicked off this week. Um, a former Secretary of State, and more germane for this, former Exxon CEO Rex Tillerson is expected mm, to testify. Wow! Um, this grew out of a New York State uh, investigation, and they uncovered that he had had a—he um, had a secret corporate email account that he was using to funnel different communications that weren't going out to investors. Um, I'm sure he'll a- answer for that on the stand. So yeah, there's um, a lot of big names and a lot of sort of interesting law at stake. Um, As far as sort of where we're at you know bill you kind of gestured to the the kind of raft of different climate suits this is obviously pretty narrow it's a securities lawsuit and it's kind of even drawn even a little more narrowly because it's in new york state law not federal and the uh, new york state securities law is something called the martin act i was talking with john hill our securities reporter before this and um that law basically can hold companies accountable uh, for um, false information given to investors, even if there's no deceitful intent, okay. which is a different, which is a lower threshold than yeah. federal law in many other states. Um, and there's been lots of other things. There's various, you know, cities and town, uh, cities and states that are trying to hold companies directly responsible for climate change. We've seen lawsuits brought um, on behalf of children against the government for not doing enough. And this really just kind of illustrates the sort of widening birth of different legal options people are pursuing for climate change. Well, from that, we're going to pivot off of uh, off of climate change. We're going
2: to stay in New York. Um, Attorneys for President Trump were uh, arguing before the Second Circuit this week, and they made a very, very bold claim uh, that the president has total immunity from prosecution while in office such that even if he (laughs) pulled out a gun and shot someone on Fifth Avenue, he could not be prosecuted. I remember that one.
0: (sighs) Um, Yeah. Okay. Well, it's my usual thing where there's so many Trump-related lawsuits, I often lose track of which one we're talking about. What's the one here?
2: It is confusing. There are... Yes. There are many of them. Uh, So this was the one that was filed that Trump himself in his individual capacity filed uh, last month that's aiming to block a subpoena from... Manhattan DA Cy Vance.
1: Um, this is in the subpoena blockage silo of Trump lawsuits. Yeah. There's a lot of those, too, yeah. but this is the one against Cy Vance. So yeah. this
2: summer, Vance launched a probe into Trump's the, the, the Trump organization yeah. um, in relation to hush money payments, the whole Stormy Daniels affair. Right. Uh, and as part of that, he sent a subpoena to Trump's accounting firm, uh, Mazers USA LLP, um, seeking Trump's personal tax returns and business records. Mm-hmm. Um getting to what Amber said, it is a separate case from uh, <laughs> from Different. the one in which Trump is aiming to stop congressional investigators from right. getting information from Deutsche Bank. Uh, that case, also before the Second Circuit, is still pending. It's also a separate case uh, from the one we talked about a few weeks ago, where the DOJ is aiming to block congressional investigators from getting information from the grand jury in the Mueller probe. A lot of blocking, a lot yeah, of subpoenas. Like,
0: this makes me feel a lot better because you do start to feel a little dumb where you're like, why can't I follow all of this? I know. But yeah. there's just a lot going on. Because
2: it has a lot of the same, yeah, like Alex said, it's a lot of the same stuff.
1: So it, like it, y- your
2: it bleeds brain, together. Yes, yeah,
0: exactly.
1: Okay. But um, for for these purposes, Cy Vance, the Manhattan district attorney, is trying to get Trump's tax returns and, and Trump is suing to stop that from happening. That's right. And okay. earlier
2: this month, a judge agreed with Vance. Uh, U.S. District Judge Victor Marrero tossed out Trump's case seeking to block this subpoena, um, ruling that he the, the court lacked the jurisdiction to hear it under this old precedent that says federal courts can't interfere in matters that a state court could handle. But the judge importantly said that even if that weren't the case, even if there weren't that sort of jurisdictional mm-hmm. procedural wrinkle here, that he still could not, uh, quote, endorse such a categorical and limitless assertion of presidential immunity from judicial process.
0: I can see that we're inching closer to that Standing on Fifth Avenue and shooting someone yep. analogy there. Yep. How do we get that into court? We're
2: getting we're getting to Fifth Avenue and guns, which is good. We can uh, go right over there right now if we yeah, want. We're close. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, anyway, yes. Uh, so that ruling was immediately stayed and appealed to the Second Circuit, to the Appeals Court, um, which heard arguments this week. Uh, our own Pete Brush was in the house and. Um, uh, it was. It did not disappoint. I think Pete used in his in his story. He used spicy exchange. Um, <laughs> sure, in, in I his, love in his Nut graph, which was <laughs> really just ideal. Um, so during the arguments, one of the judges on the three judge panel, Judge uh, Denny Chin, was pressing Trump's personal attorney, a guy named William Consovoy, uh, about how far this immunity. That they were asserting would go and you know, that's anyone who's watched a appellate court argument or a Supreme Court argument That's what they do. They probe you and they ask to see how far your argument can go and what the limiting factors are To the logical extent the end of your argument. Exactly. So to do this he reached back to January 2016 when Trump made a pretty famous claim uh, about the loyalty of his base
1: the people my people are so smart and you know what else they say about my people the polls they say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. Yeah, he does the, uh, he like makes a finger gun too in the video. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't come across on the audio. Uh, so, it's pretty jarring at the time and now it's back to uh, questions in a courtroom. So Chin was using that
2: example and alluding to it to probe the idea of this immunity when this back and forth uh, that you're about to hear happened.
0: It has and to. what's your view
2: on, on the, the Fifth Avenue example? Local authorities couldn't investigate? They
3: couldn't do anything about it?
2: I, I think once the, a president is uh, removed from office, the, any local authority. This is not a permanent immunity. Well, I'm talking about while in office. No. That's there, the hypo. There, I, Nothing I, could be done. That's your position. That is correct. That right. is correct. <laughs> it's, I mean, they're very serious uh, the questions about the functioning of our government. Sure. But it is very sort of entertaining to think about Trump standing in the middle of Fifth Avenue with a gun. Um, just it's a it's a strange scenario to imagine.
0: I think that what we're seeing here is what you guys were talking about. Like judges do this all the time where they push somebody's argument and they get to some slightly absurdist places. But. The president gave this exact yeah, he example. Gave it. That's right. the thing. Like, so it's, it's not that's what's unusual. Here. Yeah, right.
1: it's not like when Scalia was talking about health care as broccoli mandate or anything right. like that. Right. Like uh, this, the, the, the president himself now said this. This is like the extension of the unitary executive theory to 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 a preposterous end. Yeah, right. But... So,
2: um, so yeah. So no matter what, I mean, it's uh, some of the judges on the on the panel seemed pretty skeptical of this argument. We'll see what happens with the court, but. Um, if they rule in favor of Vance, I mean, this case is pretty much destined, like many of these cases, to go to the Supreme Court. Oh yeah. sure. Um, and uh, at one point, it's at one point, a uh, friend of the podcast, I should note, uh, Judge Robert Katzman, yeah. who was sitting on the panel, said, "quote We have a feeling that you may be seeing each other again in Washington." Yes. Uh, about the, yeah. the the two attorneys. One note I will leave us on before we get out of here. Um, uh, this morning on Thursday, uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio was, was uh, being asked something else about another issue and uh, was asked a question about this whole thing. His response, pretty good. Quote, anyone who calls themselves a lawyer who would say that should not be a lawyer. Let's start with that. If you shoot someone, that's a crime and no one is above the law. He would be arrested, period. Bold take, Bill. I know, really going out on a limb uh, with the, uh, we would arrest someone for shooting someone. Uh, we'll see. I mean, uh, I don't know. But good headlines over that one. But yeah, so we will see what, um, it's sort of a, it's a it, it was an interesting uh, wrinkle in a otherwise very big case that we're going to be following.
0: marijuana convictions keep thousands of people from getting jobs, housing, and loans, even in places where pot is now legal. But there's a movement afoot to change that. Here to talk about the story he wrote about this push for clean slates is Jack Karp. Welcome back to the show, Jack. Thanks, Amber. Yeah. um, I feel like we always have you on to talk about big pressing issues, (laughs) and this is no exception. We're talking about people who have previous Marijuana-related convictions. Right. So, what's the universe we're talking there? It seems like it could be a lot of people. That it have is.
3: It. it is. I mean, there's no hard and fast numbers for how many people nationally are living with um, previous marijuana convictions, but you know, just for example, um, in Illinois, which recently passed a law regarding this, they estimate that there are around 800,000 people. It's a lot with previous marijuana convictions. Yeah. And what kind of in stuff one are state. we? Yeah. That's yeah. yeah, just one state to <laughs> yeah. so multiply by fifty. And
0: what kind of stuff are we talking about? Um,
3: well, they're you know we were mostly talking about possession okay. um, the ACLU um, did a study I think back in 2013 that studied um, marijuana arrests between 2001 and 2010 and the number that they came up with was that there was something like um, 8.2 million marijuana arrests across the country in that time period and eighty eight percent of them were for simple possession.
0: I mean, I knew this was a big number, but those are <laughs> they're pretty startling. It's yeah so absolutely. many people involved here Well,
3: yeah, and like a lot of
1: things Related to the the federal government's sort of enforcement of drug laws. It's been visited upon people of color um, at a a disproportionate rate. I mean, you you wrote about that a little bit. Absolutely.
3: In fact, the same ACLU report found that in that same time span, 2001 to 2010, um, African Americans were 3.73 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than whites, and that's nationally. When you drill down to the state level, it gets worse. In Illinois, again, um, African Americans were 7.56 times more likely, and if you drill down to the county level, it gets even worse, in uh, Monroe Monroe County, Michigan, which Michigan is actually working on some expungement laws right now. Um, In that county, they were 15.4 times more likely than whites to get arrested for marijuana possession.
0: So we're talking about a big problem here that impacts a lot of people. A lot of people of color disproportionately impacted. Um, But now we... uh, I want to make clear that we're talking about people who have already served their mm-hmm. time here yeah. that are still facing problems afterwards. Absolutely.
3: So, um, you know, as probably a lot of our listeners know, when you have a criminal conviction that follows you around for basically the rest of your life, even if you served your time, served out your probation. Um, so, for instance, all these people who have marijuana-related convictions on their records um, that th- makes it difficult for them to get jobs. There's always that box that you have to check on an employment application. Yeah. I have never been convicted of a crime. There are whole... And
0: a lot of these are felonies too, right? Yeah, a
3: lot of them are felonies. There are whole you know areas of employment like childcare where you mm-hmm. can't work at all. Mm-hmm. If you have um, any kind of criminal convictions, there's also housing issues. There's certain types of housing that you're not eligible for, like public housing, um, uh, loans, financial aid, student loans. Um, you know, a lot of these kids who have marijuana convictions when they go to college, they can't get financial aid because of oh, wow. because of these. And um, one of the legislators I spoke with who, who was pushing one of these laws told me that when he was, you know, working on his law, he spoke to a constituent who couldn't go on her daughter's field trips at school because she had a marijuana conviction on her record. So
0: we're not talking about anything important. It's just no. where you live, <laughs> where you can work, yeah. if you can go to school, yeah. what you can do with your children. Right. It's what have we not touched on yes. here it's everything
1: <laughs> yeah uh, i mean you you ta- you were talking about talking to state legislators and i feel like this comes up a lot when we talk about these access to justice stories whether we're talking about the plight of sort of native women with Emma or criminal expungement with RJ it's yeah. this there a lot of confusion emerges from this patchwork of state laws and yep. you've seen if you've been paying attention at all there's a, there's sort of a slow creep of a of a, a, a an embrace of marijuana whether it's you know it's like something like you know half the states in the union have either Uh, completely legalized it or decriminalized it. But along with that, now there's this secondary issue that we're talking about, about what you do about old convictions for things that, is, that are no longer illegal or that are no longer crimes. What is sort of the state of play in terms of what states, you know, what states have expungement laws? Like, how far do they go? What, what are we looking at in terms of, like, the, the national picture?
3: Well, what we're looking at is, like you said, a patchwork. Um, yeah. A lot of states, especially the early ones who legalized marijuana first, like Washington, Michigan, those states um, did not include any kind of expungement provisions in their early laws for various reasons. Washington, because they wanted to keep law enforcement from objecting to yeah. legalization, which, yeah. of course, didn't help anyway. That's, um, well, right. I mean, right. yeah, the po- politics is an incremental battle exactly. with stuff like that. So, yeah. so now states like that are trying to kind of go back and pass laws. But then you have states like Illinois, which is the most recent state to legalize recreational marijuana, who th- those states are pairing these expungement provisions with legalization so that it's a package Mm -hmm. Um, And so but every state is doing it differently. Um, New York, which uh, just recently decriminalized um, a certain amount of recreational marijuana um, this summer, is doing automatic expungements um, so that people won't have to hire a lawyer and go to court and Mm -hmm. file paperwork. Places like Washington, which just passed an expungement law also this summer, you have to go to court and you have to petition the Mm -hmm. court. And under that law, the court does have to give you an expungement. But you still have to go through the steps to get it. And
0: are there even some states that do have some form of legalized marijuana, but that aren't considering these kind of provisions? Because it seems like the patchwork's, go- you're talking about a lot of ones that are working on various systems. Absolutely. So it seems like yeah. there's probably some others there that maybe def- aren't.
3: There definitely are states. Um, I'm trying to think. I think like, I'm, Vermont is kind of weird because recreational pot is legalized, but they have no mechanism for selling pot. So it's legal to yeah. to possess pot, but not to, to buy right. it. But I think that might be one of the states. And some of the states... It's, they have expungement laws that aren't specific to marijuana. They'll have expungement laws that say for general
1: criminal right, crimes or whatever. You yeah. can
3: expunge well, not just for general crimes, but yeah. you can expunge um, criminal records for things that are no longer crimes. Yes, gotcha. right. So if a state then decriminalizes marijuana, then you can take care, take advantage of that. Um, provision to to you would imagine that
0: depending on where you are if if there's a law that's just general like that it wasn't really designed to handle a crush of potentially hundreds of thousands of people in one state right
3: and you're you're absolutely right um going through this process um, it differs state to state, but in most places, can be incredibly cumbersome, incredibly burdensome. Um, you know, um, you know, many states that have passed these laws have found that it's really difficult for people to learn about them, take advantage of them, and right. even when they want to, it's prohibit. It can be prohibitively expensive to hire a lawyer, take time off of work, go to court. Um, so yeah, just because these laws are in place, don't may- mean that it's like a silver bullet.
0: Well, let's talk about more about what some of the sort of activists mm-hmm. and, and lawyers and people that want to see more of these expungement laws in place and the ones that do exist to be more user-friendly, let's say. Absolutely. What kind of stuff are they looking for? What do they want to have happen? Well, automatic
3: expungement is kind of the gold standard that activists really want, and that is something where you know individual people with past marijuana convictions don't have to do anything, where the state mm-hmm. just goes through criminal records finds the ones that are eligible for expungement and just automatically expunges them. That's sort of the gold standard is, for for an expungement law yeah, that in, is, in, in, in the eyes of these advocates. Absolutely. In fact, um, New Jersey just tried to... Pass actually did. I think the legislature did pass an expungement law, and the governor vetoed it because it wasn't automatic. He said it put too much oh, of the burden on uh, the people with convictions. So now they're enough. redoing it. Um, so that's the gold standard. There's also another element um, that activists are really pushing for are what are called these social equity provisions, which yeah. are starting to pop up in in these packages like Illinois, where. People um, with past marijuana convictions or people from neighborhoods that have been disproportionately impacted by marijuana prohibition Mm -hmm. kind of get a leg up in terms of getting licenses for selling recreational marijuana, or those neighborhoods um, get tax dollars from marijuana sales for things like literacy and violence prevention and job training. Mm -hmm. So, more and more, we're also starting to see activists push for what they're calling social equity provisions. Um, And what about on the other side? I mean, this is this, uh, if if it were.
1: If it had no opposition, these things would probably be getting pushed pushed uh, across the finish line pretty easily. What What do the opponents say? I mean, what is the sort of like we're we're talking about? How there is a a growing acceptance of marijuana conceptually, but why is it? Why is what is the the opposition around this issue of 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 expunging past convictions?
3: That's a really good question. I mean, most of the opposition that I came across was from law enforcement organizations um, and. You know, I've heard a few different things, one of which is that, you know, as we said, like a lot of these states already have pre-existing expungement provisions in their laws, um, but those provisions um, give courts, give judges discretion to kind of decide case by case if somebody's record should be expunged. And a lot of these new expungement laws, either they're automatic or like in Washington, you have to... You know, go to court, but the court doesn't have a choice about granting it; they have to. So, some law enforcement agencies are upset about taking discretion away from the courts. Um, I know some people are worried about, you know, the message it sends to kids um, that, you know, if we're expunging all of these past convictions, pot is no big deal, so we can do it. Um, but by far, the most common. Um, response i got from people who are opposed to this is simply the fact that it was a crime when people did it. Mm-hmm. So even if it's legal now, they shouldn't be exonerated because it was illegal when they did it. Yeah. Um so that's that's the i think the the unifying thread among the This is like opposition. some
0: weird um inverse of like ignorance of the law is no excuse. <laughs> it's like some weird corollary of that where it's like but it was legal then so no excuses now. Right. Well i will yeah. say um
3: one I did. Um, one of the legislators in Washington who I spoke with, um, I brought up that point of opposition with him, and he had a what I thought was a really you know great retort to that. Was he said, "Well, there was also a time in this country when it was illegal for African Americans to drink out of the same water coolers." right? Sure. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so I mean, for the states that have these laws on the books, um, I mean, is this just sort of uh, that th- this is what advocates are pushing for? I mean, is this just kind of a silver bullet? I mean, everything is uh, okay or uh, what?
3: Unfo- it would be great if it was, but unfortunately, no. I mean, the laws are great and they're definitely an improvement, but in a lot of places, again, because you have in some places you have to hire a lawyer, go to court, in other places, it's just a matter of you know public awareness. And a lot of these places, even that have expungement laws, people aren't taking advantage of them. So like in California, which did pass an expungement law when it legalized marijuana, um, for instance, in San Francisco, they estimated that there were about 9,300 people mm-hmm. um, who were eligible to expunge their records. Okay. And um, so I think, if I remember correctly, California legalized recreational marijuana at the end of 2016. Right. At the beginning of 2018, the San Francisco DA kind of checked to see how many people had taken advantage of that expungement pr- provision, and the number was 23.
0: Well, because first Yikes. of all, they'd have to like they'd have to hear about it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And then you have to take steps to actively do it. It's Absolutely. like multiple layers of Absolutely. getting. And, the yeah.
1: and if it costs money and it costs sort of legal legwork and time, right? We've already talked about the sort of economic straits of many of the people Absolutely. who get uh, who get sort of rolled over here. Um, but yeah, so but I mean, you, but like, so there 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 have been sort of steps. Sort of on ad hoc basis to, Absolutely. to address that. So right?
3: what the San Francisco DA did was he he teamed up with a, a technology nonprofit, Code for America, to kind of build an algorithm to go through um, records automatically, find the people who are eligible under the law, and then kind of automatically expunge those. So I mean that's just San Francisco, unfortunately, it's not right. all of California, but yeah. they they expunged 9,300 people's convictions, you know, off the bat. And now I know um, Cook County, Illinois, recently announced that they're going to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So technology is one aspect of, you know, one way to solve that problem.
0: There's one other interesting thing that you had in your reporting mm-hmm. about how there's some some cases being filed yep. that might handle this in, in creative ways as well. Right.
3: So the Legal Aid Society here in New York, along with the Manhattan DA, filed a class action um, to get 300 people's um, marijuana convictions expunged at once. It was in, right. they filed it in New York Supreme Court, and the idea was to basically file a lawsuit that said, "Look, the you know the process of expungement is too burdensome, mm-hmm. um, and all these people are being harmed by that. So that all of their records should be automatically expunged." And and the court agreed, and the judge signed off on those expungements just this summer.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting way that, that, to try to tackle this issue that seems hard, but maybe batch expungement lawsuits yeah. is what we'll start seeing more of. And, it,
3: and it's going to keep happening
1: because, I mean, more and more states are warming up to this, as I've said a couple times. So, I mean, it's definitely uh, an issue to uh, keep an eye on. So, yeah. yeah,
3: I think as more and more states legalize it, more and more people in those states are going to start to wonder, well, why are these people still being punished for something that I can do on the sidewalk? Definitely. All right, Jack. Well, thanks for walking us through. It's a really interesting story. Thank you. I appreciate it.
2: Super interesting uh, chat with Jack there. Interesting story. Everyone should go read it. And uh, anyone out there listening, if you enjoyed hearing us talk about cannabis and all the various... problems that come up from the current sort of limbo that we're in when it comes to cannabis law. Um, you should go read our new whole vertical uh, that's that's yeah. dedicated yeah, to it. Yeah, we have
0: a whole wire now covering cannabis. And we also have a special thing that should apply to everybody who's listening to a podcast right now. We have a special five-part limited series show called Legalization. Yes, um, I've been working on producing this. Steve Trader, beloved by the Pro Se staff, has yeah. d- been doing tons of work uh, producing and editing it. And Diana Novak-Jones, who is a repeat uh, guest on our show. Past
1: and future guest. Yeah,
0: she is hosting the show, and it's a really deep-dive look. It's different from Pro Se. It's narrative style, and it explores a different issue in the cannabis space um, each week.
1: Yeah, I've had a chance to listen to some of it, and you guys really cover it from a lot of of different angles. It's um, it's really an interesting show. I think everybody's going to get a big kick out of it. Yeah,
0: I really hope people love it, and I think a lot of our Pro Se subscribers have been – interested about what other things we might explore in audio. So, if you're interested at all, just go to whatever platform you're listening on, Apple Podcasts, you can find it there. Um, Look for Law360. The show is called Legalization, so if you search for those two terms, you'll find it. First episode drops October 29th, so go subscribe now.
1: And that, I think, uh, will do it for us this week. It will.
0: Thanks. Thanks for being with me, Alex. Thanks. And Bill.
1: See you again next week.
0: We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest this week, Jack Carp, and contributing reporters, Pete Brush, Frank Runyon, and Keith Goldberg. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. Our is available on all the major podcast platforms, and we'd love it if you subscribe and also leave us a written review. That's what helps other people find us. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you again next week.